This episode contains adult language and topics that may be disturbing for some listeners. Such topics include suicide, drug use, physical or sexual abuse of a child. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Grant. And I'm Erica. And this is From From Crime Crime to to Crime. Crime. Welcome back to From Crime to Crime. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Happy Turkey Day, or I guess almost Turkey Day, because it's tomorrow. Yeah. Well, we've got a real family-friendly show for you in in mind then. Oh, yeah, right. (laughs) What, you don't find murder podcasts to be family-friendly? No, and especially not this one, because I do want to warn you guys, there is some language in this one that we don't use nowadays. And I know what language you're talking about, but Eric is probably going to use some profanity throughout the episode as well. I know that's typical. Well, I always do right, that. <laughs> but um, this one really lit her and I up. We've both been pretty, uh, pretty mad, honestly, about how this kind of all went down. Yeah. At first glance, this case seems like, oh, five guys that took a wrong turn on a winter night and got lost. And because of their varying degrees of cognitive disabilities and the weather, they starved or froze to death. Like, that's pretty much the narrative that's always been told around this case. And if you read the newspaper articles from back then, that's what happened. You would just be like, oh, yeah, a bunch of guys got lost. But I think you're right. Like, I think that that on the surface level, this doesn't seem that sinister or even that deep. But like, once you start really looking looking at it and understanding what it is, something bad happened to these guys this night. And that's what's crazy is like when you look at the details, them getting lost and randomly taking a wrong turn and just getting lost is like the least likely scenario of all of them. (laughs) And even if that is what happened, there's still so many unknowns like how they ended up where they ended up. So we'll get into all that in the theories, but we should start with the the five guys that this story is about the Yuba County Five. Well, let's do it then. So Jackie Hewitt, Ted Weir, Jack Madruga, Bill Sterling, and Gary Mathias are the five boys, as various newspaper articles and family and friends would call them. But they were all men. They were all between 24 and 32. So they were not boys. They did all have varying degrees of mild cognitive impairments, except Gary Mathias, but he was diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic. So let's start with Gary. Yeah, let's learn more about Gary because I think he probably has one of the more interesting backstories of everyone. He was a talented athlete in high school. He played football and was really, really good. The most talented athletes do play high school football. That's a fact. Yeah, okay, Grant. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Um... Even though he was practically blind without his glasses, they said he like had double vision without his glasses. And he dabbled a little bit in psychedelic drugs through his teen years. But after high school, he enlisted in the U.S. Army and he was sent overseas during the Vietnam War. And while he was in Germany, he had some sort of mental health episode possibly caused by psychedelic drug use and was sent back to the U.S. where he was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. So he was discharged from the army because they don't like that. (laughs) Especially then. Then they weren't really willing to deal with anything from anybody. No. They say that his schizophrenia could have been partially caused by his drug use in his early teens. Like that 
can mess with your brain chemistry big time. And it would take a while for him to get his meds regulated. He had a couple of years in there where his family called it like haywire episodes. And one time they said that he went to his grandma's house in Oregon and he walked home to California from Oregon. What? Yeah, it took like eight weeks and it was like 550 miles. And they said that he lived on food that he had scavenged, like that people left on their front porches and stuff. Oh, right. I I do remember hearing this now. Like, yeah, he was totally just out in the wilderness, just doing his thing, kind of doing what he had to do, drinking milk off of porches. Yeah, but he wasn't really in the wilderness. He was walking from Oregon to California. Like, yeah, some of it I'm sure was forested and woods and stuff. But it was like they just said that he he had a few pretty severe episodes he had had some run-ins with the law and stuff like that but he did get his medication regulated and he was doing super well like his doctors described him as like the ideal like everything was going well for him for the last couple of years his body was reacting to the meds great he had no episodes everything was going really really well for him that's fantastic you really don't hear that very often in these kind of cases especially in the 60s so that's wonderful well, we're into the 70s by now, but yeah. So one of his doctors recommended that he joined a program called the Gateway Project, and it was a vocational rehab that helped people with cognitive disabilities, drug addiction, or mental health issues. And it helped them like have a community and find services and jobs, and it was just like a place where they could get resources. This program is where all the boys would meet. They were all on the Gateway Gators basketball team. All right, so we've got him pretty well figured out. Who were the rest of these guys? Okay, so Jackie Hewitt was the oldest of his siblings, and he was described as well-mannered, sweet, kind. His learning disabilities have been described as the most severe, but he worked. He had a job at PG&E. He had a girlfriend, lots of friends. He had a motorcycle. He was known to drive a car every now and then, even though he didn't have a license. He was also very, very, very athletic, and he was on the Gateway Gators basketball team. Jackie was fairly independent except for his best friend, Ted. They've been described as always together, thick as thieves, and Jackie depended on Ted for certain things, like making phone calls. Jackie had like a real aversion to talking on the phone, and so Ted would make his phone call. Like if Jackie had to call somebody, he would have Ted do it. Oh, perfect. (laughs) Yeah. So Ted Weir was 32 years old and he was described by his family as loving and caring and very kind. All of these boys were described as very sweet, loving boys. He was also extremely athletic. He was a bigger guy. He was like six foot tall, over 200 pounds. And he had won silver and gold medals in the Special Olympics in previous years. So he was actually a really good athlete. I think that's very telling kind of as the story goes on that like two of these guys at the very minimum were in good shape and good athletes and were used to rigorous physical activity. Yeah. As we go on, all of them were described as athletic. So Ted's... Cognitive disabilities are very hard to discern because there wasn't real descriptive diagnoses back then. I heard an interview on a really great podcast called the Yuba County 5 podcast. I think that's what it's called, Yuba County 5. It's a really, really good in-depth, deep-dive podcast on this case. And I heard in an interview with his family on that podcast, they kind of theorized that if he was around now, he would be somewhere on the autism spectrum. 
because he was extremely high functioning. He also worked at PG&E and he was super smart. He just had problems with social cues and nuance and his family described him as having no common sense, but not in everything, just in some things. They said he was like extremely routined and scheduled. He liked plans and he didn't like to deviate from those plans at all, if possible. And he was described as not super spontaneous, which made me laugh. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I think, you know, what we know about autism and the spectrum and stuff like that, that's right in line with it. And that's, you know, why it makes us laugh is, you know, because we've worked with people like this and- Yeah, we know somebody like this. And when they say he's described as not super spontaneous, it's like, yep, that's exactly. Yeah, I mean, I always, for like a a reference that most people would know, I always think of Sheldon from The Big Bang Theory, you know, just very, has a schedule, has his place, everything needs to be in line and stuff like that. And it's, it's very true. That is a lot of times how people with autism act. So they don't know for sure, but that's how they describe Ted Weir. And he was also on the basketball team. So the third guy is Bill Sterling. Bill Sterling's family has not been as vocal over the years about his background as some of the other boys' families have been. But there are a few things that are known. He was very smart, very religious, and extremely organized. He was known as like the coordinator or the planner of their group of friends. Like he was the one who always scheduled their basketball practices and things like that. He was very organized. <laughs> sounds sounds about right. Yeah, I love that. An example of this is the night before this all goes down, they had a basketball game scheduled or a basketball practice scheduled and the gym that they were supposed to use to practice for for their basketball team was booked for something else and they didn't want to miss their practice. So he called around and found a gym in Sacramento that they could practice at and booked it and they all drove down to Sacramento and practiced. That's pretty cool. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, they took this basketball thing super duper seriously. I love that. I think that's so cool. I, it, honestly, yeah. if I could get into a basketball league, I would take it super seriously even at this age. So I'm all for this. Yeah. So another thing that we know about Bill is when he was young, he was institutionalized. The reason listed in the paperwork is hyperactivity. And he spent like eight years in and out of state institutions or private institutions. So I don't I don't know what that hyperactivity doesn't to me sound like something you would be able to be institutionalized for, but apparently in the late sixties, early seventies, maybe it was. I don't know. I feel like it's a broad diagnosis. I mean, because I think you're right. I don't think that you'd send somebody to an institution for hyperactivity. I think that it's probably a broad sweeping term for we don't know, but yeah, someone needs to pay attention. Or maybe they did know and for privacy reasons or maybe at his parents' request, Could be. they were like, hey, can you not put that on the paper? That's a really good thought. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, we don't really know. But when as he got older and into adulthood, he worked at a restaurant on the nearby Air Force Base, but his mom made him quit because she found out that airmen were taking advantage of him. Like on payday, they would get him drunk and then take his money. Oh, shit. So she made him quit. Just drop out? Can she do that? He wasn't in the Air Force. He worked at the base, at a restaurant at the base. Yeah. God, that makes it even worse, honestly, that like these airmen are just getting them drunk and then taking their money. He didn't even work in the Air Force. That makes it worse. Yeah. So he was best friends with a guy named Jack Madruga, and they ended up working together at a place called Sunsweet Dried Fruit Company. 
Jack Madruga, who his family called Doc, was described a lot like the other boys. You know why they called him Doc? Yeah, because when he was a, a little kid, like a little toddler, he used to go, what's up, Doc? What's up, Doc? Like the cartoon. Yeah, and I love I that. And they said that their That's whole cute. family has like different nicknames, and that was just what his was because he thought he was Bugs Bunny. Yeah, I thought that was cute. Me too. So he's been described kind of the same way, very sweet, very athletic. His cognitive impairment is really hard to discern because from what we know about him, he was never diagnosed with anything. And to me, he doesn't seem cognitively impaired at all, but he is part of the Gateway Gators program. So, I mean, there's something going on, but he graduated high school in 1965. And then in 1966, he was drafted to the U.S. Army. And after he was discharged, he went to college for a little bit before he dropped out and got a job at Sunsweet Dried Fruit Company. Sounds like a nice gig, honestly. Yeah. And he bought a car that was like his prized possession. He was like super obsessed with this car. And it was a turquoise and white Mercury Montego. And he loved this car. He had a driver's license and was obviously completely capable of being independent. We kind of want to reiterate like this is not a story about five guys who like didn't know how to function. Like they were all totally functioning adults. But yes, they lived with their families and they did have some degree of cognitive impairment or mental illness. The other common thread when used to describe these boys was routined and scheduled. They were all described as homebodies and very dependable. They liked to be home and in their own beds at a certain time. No deviations from the plan. (laughs) Yep, that sounds very on point. Like, in one of those interviews that I heard with the families, Jackie's brother said he didn't even think he ever spent the night away from home before. Like, they were described really? as homebodies. I never, yes. I didn't re- I didn't realize that. Yeah. So, Saturday, February 25th, 1978, the guys had a huge game. And it was apparently a, a basketball tournament for the Special Olympics. And they were pumped. <laughs> I mean, when I say pumped... They were pumped because apparently if they won this basketball tournament, they had the chance to meet some lady named Sally Struthers, who was an actress. Did you say some lady named Sally Struthers? Sally Struthers is a mega star. Thank you very much. She was on Uh, All in the Family. (laughs) Oh, are you joking? Oh, my God. She was a mega star, especially at this time. All in the Family was huge in the 60s and maybe even a little bit into the 70s. But, dude, so many shows came off of the uh, from there, too. That's where the Jeffersons came from. Oh, man, I can't believe you didn't know who Sally Struthers is. She's She no, plays I Gloria. I mean, she's she's Gloria. <laughs> I never, I've never watched that show before. Oh, my gosh. This is it's way better than Emergency. I can tell you that much. But <laughs> it's a fantastic. <laughs> I can't believe you don't know it. Oh my Sorry, god! Dude. I used to just sit down and like watch, like binge watch Nick at Night and stuff, and like All in the Family was always on. And Archie was, uh, he spoke like some of these people speak in uh, in these texts that in we this won't story. Re- yeah, um, yeah. But I mean, like for the time, like that was how it was. Sammy Davis yeah. Junior was on there. Oh my gosh, what a great show! I can't okay. believe you. Well, you're. Don't You're not going to talk me into watching it, so let's yeah. move on here. I probably won't even Sorry. go back and watch it myself, but I will say All in the Family was a great show from what I remember. 
Okay. Well, obviously the boys were pretty amped about it too because they all had their uniforms laid out. I mean, not besides taking basketball very seriously in general, they were really stoked for this tournament in Rockland the next day. They laid their uniforms out. Gary Mathias even asked his mom to clean his sneakers for the game. Like he Ooh, wanted clean wow. kicks. Yeah. <laughs> so they were pumped. And they all lived in, I don't think we talked about where they lived, but they all lived in or around Yuba City, California. And Yuba is like an hour north of Sacramento, so way up at the top of California. Did you ever watch Gilmore Girls? Yes. Sally Struthers is Babette in Gilmore Girls. Oh! I don't know who that is. I've never watched Gilmore Girls, but I did just look it up because I was like, I can't believe Erica doesn't know who this is. She has to have been on something else. <laughs> yeah, she played okay. Babette on Gilmore Girls. Okay. All right. I know who she is then. Okay, okay. cool. <laughs> Whew, problem solved. solved that. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Well, this was a great episode, everyone. Thanks for coming out, but this mystery has been solved. Erica now knows who Sally Struthers is. We can move on. So yeah. Uh, follow us on Instagram okay. at front. Oh, we're still going? Okay. Yeah. No, let's keep going. So Yuba, <laughs> so did I say that Yuba was like an hour north of Sacramento? Yeah, I did. It's like way up at the top of California. And the Friday night before this game, so the 24th of February, the boys decide they wanted to go to Chico to watch UC Davis, their favorite college basketball team, play Chico. And apparently this was like a big game for UC Davis. If they won, it like meant they went on to some playoffs or championship or some stupid shit. <laughs> Apparently, Chico, like, super sucked real bad that year. Yeah. So the boys thought it would be cool to go to Chico and watch their favorite team win. From Yuba, where they live, to Chico, it's, like, 50 miles north, like, a straight shot north of California 99. So it's not that far of a drive. And they've done these drives before. Like I said, Thursday night, they drove to Sacramento just to practice for their basketball game. You know, like, these boys were independent as far as like they drove around and they did stuff and this drive is easy it's all flat it's city no snow or anything sketchy like that it's like a totally easy drive so jack madruga picked them all up in his turquoise and white mercury monte montego montego what is a montego it's a montego and i don't know oh okay i've heard of it i Either just way. All right, I'll look it up. I'm on a roll anyway today. I'm no, I know what the car looks like. I want to know what the word Montego means. Oh, well, I don't know. Let me see. I didn't even know what the car looked like, so. Oh, that's a nice car. Yeah, it looks like an old-timey car. Apparently, it's a nameplate that was applied to three separate generations of vehicles, so we're on the right track. Okay, so they made it up. Okay. <laughs> I thought it, like, meant something. Anyway, so Jack Madruga gets in his Mercury Montego. And he picks up all the boys from their houses and they stop at a service station that Bill Sterling's parents either own or run. And he grabbed his allowance from them and Jack put gas in the car and they headed to Chico for the basketball game. From eyewitness accounts, they made it to the game no problem, watched UC Davis beat Chico and they left in really good moods because their team just won. And just before 10 p.m., they stopped at Bear's Convenience Store, and they bought candy bars and sodas and a thing of milk. And the clerk remembered them specifically because they came in right at 10 o'clock. I don't, I mean, I guess that's a reason to remember them. I would think that there would be other reasons, like the weird stuff that they just bought, but. <laughs> yeah. Okay. 
She said that it was because she was annoyed because they closed at 10. Oh. And so she was doing all the closing stuff. That makes more sense. And then they walked in and bought all these candy bars. She had to recount the money, all that kind of stuff. So, Oh, I see. No wonder she, like, that stands out, of course. And yeah. By the way, Montego is primarily a male name of Spanish origin that means mountainous. Oh, interesting. So she said that they got what they got, marathon bars and Pepsis and milk and all that kind of stuff, you know, snacks for the road. And then they left, presumably heading home to Yuba, which was like a 50 minute drive straight down 99. But they never made it home. And in the middle of the night, like around 2 a.m., the boy's parents started waking up and realizing they never made it home and worrying. And they started calling each other to find out, like, oh, did the boys end up all staying the night at your house? Or were they too tired to drive all the way home or whatever? Which is already not like them. Like, they're probably pretty worried, you know, because it's already not their type of behavior. Yes, exactly. They discovered calling each other that none of the boys ever made it home. And like you said, this was un heard of for these boys they were so dependable and so reliable that their parents were like this is there's no way so by early the next morning their parents called the police and the police did that whole lie to the family and told them they had to wait 24 hours to report them missing because they were all adults so the family started searching themselves because they were like they're missing whether the police will take the report or not they know they're missing because this is not like the boys and so they're thinking they broke down or got in an accident or something so all the families are driving the road to and from Chico and stopping everywhere in Chico asking around if anybody's seen them They go to the where the basketball game was, all that kind of stuff. No sign of them anywhere. So they check the meeting spot for the basketball game where they were all supposed to meet to get on the bus to go to Rockland. And they obviously weren't at the meeting spot either. So they were like, there's no way these boys wouldn't come home anyway. And there's definitely no way they're missing this game because they knew who Sally Struthers was and they were pretty stoked. Yeah, I would be too. But they weren't there. So they knew, the families knew right away. So by Saturday night, the police let them report them missing, which... We all know that they were able to do that earlier, but whatever. (laughs) I hate that. That drives me so nuts because they say it in a way where it makes you think that like you're not allowed to report them. It's like, no, there's no law that says that you can report them missing right now, right right this second. They just don't want to. (laughs) Yeah. So the families also contacted the local media to get the word out about the boys being missing and their car because their car's missing, too. That's a good point. Yeah. And unfortunately, the media right away from the very first articles portrayed them as, quote, retarded boys. Oh, wow. Unquote, who got lost in their defense back then. That was a medical diagnosis. Like that was the word they used in medical diagnoses right. was retarded. So in the newspaper's defense, like that was common language back then. Doesn't make any better for anybody listening, but you know, different time. Yeah. So that's unfortunately how they were portrayed in the media. Instead of people who are missing, some members of the family remember like a sense of like, oh, who cares? It's just a bunch of slow kids who got turned around. Like that's literally- it's. Very much how it feels. Yeah. And that's how the newspaper articles read. When you look back at archived newspaper articles and stuff, it's very much like they just got lost. Nobody was treating this as a crime at all. It was just these boys got lost. 
So for the next couple of days, there's no sign of the boys anywhere. Then on Tuesday evening, a forest ranger in the Plumas National Forest hears the missing report and the description of the Mercury Montego, 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 whatever. <laughs> and Baby, why don't we go? Yeah. And he remembered seeing that car parked on the Orville-Quincy Highway. Like, this is in the middle of fucking nowhere. Right. That's, and at that time, too, like, that really must stand out to this guy. Yeah, because that highway and where he saw that car is nowhere near Chico or Yuba. And it's not on the way to or from either of them. It's, like, southeast and northeast of those two places. Like, they should have been nowhere near there. It's not on their way home. It's, like, 60 miles off course, at least. So, where they find Jack's Mercury is parked on this highway that goes from Orville to Quincy, but it's a remote, remote highway. It's rough. It's not paved. It's like impassable in the winter unless you're on a snowmobile. It's not like a real highway. And I know exactly what you mean by that. Um, For those yeah. who don't, though, it's tight. It's slick. It's hairpin. You can't see anything in like around the corner. It's not a, it's not a place to hang out. And it's not paved. Right. This is like a rough pitted road. And everybody says there's no way Jack would have driven his prized loved Mercury up this road on purpose. And where they find his car is parked at the snow line, which is about as far as it would make it. And when they find the car, it's in perfect shape. It's unlocked. The driver window is partially down, but there's no keys and no boys. Just parked on this off-road road at the snow line with nobody in it. So, I mean, obviously right away, that's a red flag. You know, that's, huh, with the time yeah. that it is, the weather that it is, like, there's no reason. And the car's in fine condition. You know, it's not like the, yeah. it blew. Yeah, it had or... plenty of gas. It started up no problem when they hotwired it. They had to hotwire it because there was no keys. But it started up no problem. And they said if it was stuck in the snow at all, it would have been like no problem for five athletic men to push it back two, three feet out of the snow and drive back down the mountain. Like it was right at the snow line. Yeah. It's not like it was super deep into right. the forest where they wouldn't have been able to push themselves out. Yeah, that makes no sense. I mean, honestly. Yeah. So the newspaper pretty much ran with the story that the boys got lost on their way home and they just like ended up in the National Forest on foot in the winter, not in winter clothes, and just ran away from the car and got lost in the woods. That doesn't really jive, you know, like that doesn't that doesn't really add up. Yeah, but that's the, that's the narrative I, <laughs> that I get, they're going with. I so. get what you're saying. I'm just saying yeah. it doesn't really add up. No. So there were footprints, they say, leading into the forest in the snow, like going up, not going down. So this is bad because not only did the police not let them report them missing right away, which stalled this whole investigation for like over a day, but then the ranger up in the Plumas Forest didn't hear about it for a few days even after that. So if the boys did take off on foot from the car for whatever reason into the forest, they've been out there four days at this point. Brutal four days too like it's not like yeah. you know it's wonderful out there it's brutal no this this area is like another planet <laughs> it's not it isn't what you would think when you think of like california like i know when we go to visit our friends who live up there for those of you who don't know our friend who does the fiddle playing at the beginning of our podcast he lives up here in this antarctica where the donner people ate each other area for all we know he's eating people too we don't hear from him a whole lot anymore that he gave us what we wanted <laughs> that's because even now this place is super duper remote like yeah. 
They have shitty cell service. Like, it's 2022, and, like, sometimes they don't have cell service up here still. He like, did this just place get is Starlink. Super remote. He just got Starlink satellite internet, so I don't even know how good it is, but... <laughs> Doesn't it sound like it's from space? <laughs> I mean, it is. It's Starlink satellite. I guess it is from space, but... <laughs> I love that you love this so much. Oh, I just love that he lives like he's in the 1800s. Like he's from Orange County where we're from, but you would never know. He wants to live in the 1800s though. Like that's kind of been his thing. I know. We love you, Ty. Nah. But you live where it's impossible to live, which is why it's really scary that these boys have been out here in this forest for four days in February. So at this time, they also have this like struggle with whose case this is because Yuba and Butte County are involved and then the cars found in Plumas and then the Forest Service is involved because it's a national forest. So it doesn't really matter who's in charge. They did all start looking, including the family. Like Jackie Hewitt's dad searched every day and a lot of their the boys' siblings and parents, they searched every day. For both Jackie and Jack, they worked at the same place. And when they went missing, his the company continued to pay both of them and mm-hmm. told Jack, go look for him and we'll continue to pay you. Like, do what you have to do. Oh, wow. I didn't hear that. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. No wonder he was able to search every because he searched every day. Yeah. And partially the reason that he searched every day was because he explains that early on when he went up there to search in like the really early days of this, he drove by, he called it the sheriff's posse, <laughs> and they were supposed to be out searching and he said they were all sitting around a campfire drinking beer. So he's like, yeah. obviously I have to do this myself. And obviously that's where this narrative came from of, you know, how these cops felt. Yeah. If the dad of one of the kids walks up and this is what's going on, like... Yeah. So I did read a lot about some of the law enforcement agencies involved didn't really treat this very seriously and did kind of have that mindset like, oh, who cares? But then I heard that there was a lot that did take it very seriously, that they even volunteered to do searches on their time off, even after the searches were called off. So that's, I mean, that's good to hear, I guess. Yeah. That they weren't all sitting around a campfire drinking beer. Some of them were looking. Yeah. So for everyone that dropped the ball, there was one that was looking. So that's, I guess, good. Either way, the weather was not helping at all. It was freezing and there were 20 to 40 foot snow drifts. Like searching for these boys was difficult and dangerous. So the searches were called on and off. Like there was a couple times where even like experienced search and rescue people like had issues and got lost and like they almost lost a few search and rescue people. Well, we we even talked about to Tyson about this area and he said this is a terrible place to be. Like it's not a good area. It's treacherous, honestly. Yeah, and he said that this part of the forest is like you could pretty much only get to it from with snowmobiles this time of year. Yeah. Yeah, like, he did. It's not even like, oh, you don't have the right kind of car. It's like, no, cars don't even work. It has to be a mobile but built for snow. So the searching was on and off because of the weather. And in the first couple of weeks, we do meet a new character. <laughs> in this story, named Joe Shones. He contacts law enforcement because he lives 
kind of down the hill from where the car was found in this Berry Creek area. He was drinking at a place called Mountain House, which I'm assuming is some sort of bar. And it's eight miles down the mountain from where the car was found. And he tells this wild story about how he's drinking at this mountain house. And then he decided to go check the snow line for a family ski trip that he was taking his family on in his Volkswagen bug. And so he drove up this road. Then he got stuck in his Volkswagen bug because you can't drive that car in this environment and while he was pushing his bug out of the snow at the snow line he had a heart attack and then there was nobody around so he got back in his car to warm up from the heat in his car then he saw headlights then six hours later he saw a truck with a lady and a baby and the five boys and he was begging them for help and all the lights went off and then he never saw them again And that story was a very condensed version of what he said. He told like 50 different stories about what he saw that night on that road. Well, he's known for making stories up. Like, this is what this guy is known for. Like, people, when they heard that this was the guy involved, they were like, well, he's a known storyteller. Like, he makes things up so he can be a part of the action all the time. And But there was a few witnesses that did see his Volkswagen bug up there. Because he says that after the boys in the Montego didn't help him and they vanished into the forest for no reason, he then got out of his car after having a heart attack in the snow, decided to walk eight miles back to that bar and left his car there. And then when he got to the bar, somebody at the bar drove him home and then his wife drove him to the hospital. So and then she didn't get his car for a couple days. And so people did see his car there. Cool. I mean, cool. He was there, but like, I mean, I just, I don't believe this guy. You know, when you have a history of telling people like fabricated truth, it's the boy who cried wolf, you know? And then finally, he very well may have been up there. That could have been true, but nobody believes him because this is what he does. Right. So that's just like a weird side story. And we'll get into that in the theories. That's not really a huge part of the case, I guess, although it could be. (laughs) February turns into March. March turns into April. Lots of volunteer searching, but the official searching kind of dies down. And the family has zero answers. Nobody has seen the boys. Nobody finds anything. They did find a couple of pieces of gold cloth tied to trees every couple of yards or whatever, but they don't think it was related to the boys at all. They found nothing. Pretty much the mindset by that time was wait till the fall and deer hunters will find them. That's pretty much the answer was like once all the snow melts off and there's deer hunters up there walking through the forest, somebody's going to find something. I know I know that this is a very common thing for places like this, but that is still a very unacceptable answer. Although I don't know. I've never lived in that. Like, God, maybe you have no other choice. Maybe the snow sucks so bad. That you can't find anybody. Well, that's what they say. Like, there was one time where a guy's dog smelled something in like a 40-foot snowdrift. And they dug for like 14 hours in this snowdrift and they didn't find a thing. Like, in one snowdrift. That's crazy. You know, it's like trying to find a needle in a haystack. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So by June 4th, which is like a little over three months after the boys went missing, two guys and one of their kids were dirt bike riding up in this forested area. And they got to a spot in the road near Buck's Lake where a fallen tree had blocked their path. So they turned around and tried to go a different way. But there was a 20 foot snowdrift blocking that path. How big was that tree? Like, I know trees up there are really big and stuff. Like, was this, like, an absolutely monumental tree? That's why they had to turn around? 
It must have been because they said they had to try to find a different way. Plus, I think this is one of those areas where even when you're off-roading or recreationally doing stuff up there, you don't really want to get too far away from the trails and the roads because you can get turned around real easy. Yeah, I can see that. That sounds very cool, but very scary as well. So they tried this other way, but there was a snowdrift blocking that way. What is a snowdrift? I don't know what that is. It's where like the wind blows snow that's on the ground like into these big, huge... They call them snow drifts, (laughs) but it's like a big, (laughs) it's like a big mound of snow. Oh, that sounds terrible. That's why, that's why we live where it doesn't rain or it doesn't snow. It doesn't rain either, but (laughs) yeah. Yeah. But that's bad. Yeah. Yeah. So, but that's what's crazy about this area is like, even though the weather is better, there's still shit like 20 foot snow drifts blocking the trails in shady areas. Like that's crazy. That's super kind of crazy. Like I was just thinking about that and like. This is June, you know, like yeah. most places are. It's like 112 at my house. <laughs> right? I was going to say, most places are uh, a lot warmer than this. And so this, and it's in California, which is crazy too, because we're, I'm in California. And in June, there's no snow anywhere that I can see, you know? Yeah. Like not even in the mountains. Right. Stuff, exactly. Yeah. So like for it to be this bad at this time, like California is a crazy place. Yep. So they decide because it's getting later in the afternoon by this point to just turn around and head back down the mountain. Like they were trying to go up and over apparently like to Quincy and then take another road around or something. But they just decide, forget it. We're just going to head back. And they pulled into the Daniel Zink campground to like stretch their legs, probably go potty or whatever and regroup. And in this campground, There was one of those maps that's like posted up behind the plastic, you know, so you could see all the trails and stuff. And so the two adults were checking out this map and the kids started walking around these trailers. They're not trailers like pull behind your truck trailers. They're more like mobile homes, like double wides. Yeah. So there's like no wheels on them and they're kind of like set there for at least a while. Yeah. And I don't know what these are for, except that it says that they're forest ranger trailers and... Forest rangers live in them in the summertime when they're doing ranger shenanigans. I don't I don't know what they do. <laughs> who knows? There's all kinds of weird cabiny things up here in the mountains. There's like people who live off grid and in bunk houses and shit. So there was two of these trailers and the kids smelled something real pungent. So he started looking around and there was a broken window in one of the trailers. And when he peered inside, he saw that there was a bunch of bunks. And a bunch of open cans of food rations like laying around. But he quickly realized that the smell was not the food. He saw human remains laying in one of the bunks. So he ran back and told his dad and the friend. And they looked inside and confirmed that what he thought he saw is what he saw. This is 1978. They don't have cell phones to call 911. And they wouldn't work up there anyway, even if they did. So they hop on their dirt bikes and head back down the mountain to Denny's. When they get to Denny's, they call the sheriff and the sheriff comes to Denny's where they're eating dinner to take the report. And the guys wanted to lead them back up to where they found the human remains. But the sheriff was like, eh, it's getting dark. We'll go in the morning. Sheriffs, man. Although, you know, we give police a hard time when they deserve it, but it is easier to go during the day. So I don't blame them too much. Like, I understand, but like wanting to get up there, but eh, I don't blame them a whole lot for that. Yeah. It's like, how much are they going to get done in the dark in the middle of the night? Right. So the next morning, law enforcement and search teams and all that went to the Daniels Inc. campground and they found the remains of Ted Weir. 
he was in really bad shape. He was tucked into eight bed sheets, and there was like 36 sea rations opened and eaten in this cabin. He was tucked into eight bed sheets? Yeah. Can, can you really tuck yourself in like that? No. So somebody else have, would have had to have tucked him in. Yeah. At least the thought. Yeah, and we'll get into that in the theories on who it might have been and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, it seems like somebody tucked him in because his feet were in severe shape. He had frostbite that had turned into wet gangrene, and he was missing five toes. He wouldn't have been in real good shape to be moving around anyway, let alone tucking himself into bed and taking care of himself. Yeah. When Ted went missing, he weighed over 200 pounds. When they found him, he had lost like at least 80 pounds, they estimate, or more. He was like almost half his size. And he had had enough facial hair growth to estimate that he had survived 8 to 13 weeks. Wow. So he had been there for minimum two months, or at least alive for minimum two months. Even if he hadn't been in the cabin for that long, he had stayed alive for that long yeah and if he had lasted the 13 weeks estimate he would that means he would have been alive until may and they found him june 4th wow yeah so like why didn't they search these trailers and stuff like this before or had they and like there was just no nobody there ah great question the short answer is they dropped the ball (laughs) yuba and butte county blame plumas and the forest service for not telling them that they were there and plumas and the rangers say they did tell them but the reality of the situation is this trailer was so far from the car it really wasn't in the search area anyways like traveling that road from where the car was it was about 12 miles from the car they would have had a hard time believing that they would have made it that far to begin with to even search this, even if they knew the trailers were there. Well, yeah, 12 miles in those conditions, I mean, might as well be 200. Yeah, and in regular clothes and tennis shoes and stuff like that. Like, they weren't dressed for the weather. So it could just be that they did know the trailers were there and just chose not to search them because it was so far. And it would have been really hard to search them. Like, a snowcat would have been the only way to get to them. To Like, at that time with the weather. Right. They wouldn't have been able to just drive up there and search him. It would have only been with a snowcat or a snowmobile, something like that. Yeah. Which, ironically, it's been uncovered since that a snowcat went to those trailers like the day before or a couple days before the boys went missing. So it's possible that if the boys were lost, they might have seen the tracks from that snowcat and followed them to that cabin. No, that's kind of the only thing that would make any sense, too, right? Like, that would be how they'd have to find it. Yeah. None of the other boys were found in the trailer, but there were a lot of things that were found. Ted's personal items, like his watch and all that kind of stuff, and then a watch that didn't belong to any of the boys. 36 sea rations that were open and eaten, but there was enough rations and dehydrated food between this trailer and the other trailer for all of the boys to have survived like a year. Wow, really? Yeah. There were also matches and paperback books and a fireplace, but no evidence that a fire was ever started. I mean, that's really suspect. Like, if they had matches and the means to make a fire for as in such bad shape as they'd been in and as still as cold as it has been, there's really no logical reasons why they wouldn't make a fire, right? Right. I mean, not that I can think of. Yeah, nothing comes to mind. 
The only thing that I have heard is that because the boys were so sweet and kind that they may not have wanted to rip up the books and burn them because they weren't their books. Oh, my God. Like their families think like, well, maybe they didn't want to because it would have been stealing. But obviously they opened the sea rations and ate some of them. So what's the difference of stealing some stuff and not everything? Like you're lost. Light whatever you want to on fire. Nobody cares about books. <laughs> well, not at that point. People care about books otherwise. Well, yeah, but I mean, in this situation, you know what I mean? Yeah, but it's still important to say just because some people don't think books yeah. are important. But that is, I, I don't know. I guess it comes down to like food versus like tearing somebody's personal property up and burning it. I don't know. Like, I think anybody that I know would probably do that in the same situation to be like, hey, man, I'm really sorry, but this is, yeah. this is what ha- happened. And people would understand. Right. They'd be like, yeah, no, of course. I'd rather you burn my book. Than you die in my place. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, totally. But there was also heat in these trailers, but you would have had to go outside and turn the propane on before the heat would work. So it is possible that they didn't know that. Like if you've never been in this trailer before, been around trailers, you may not know that you have to turn the propane on. No, I never would have. To turn the heater on. That kind of makes sense, but not starting a fire, I don't know. But there was other mysterious things found in the trailer, too, that would lead you to believe that more than just Ted made it to the trailer. Remember I told you Ted had lost five toes? Yeah. Supposedly there were 11 toes found in the cabin. Um, Did he have 11 toes? No, of course not. Okay. And he was only missing five, so so somebody else made it there with him. Well, that makes... A lot of sense. I mean, to survive out here for that long, like, I would think you'd need somebody else. You know, that's a long time to be on your own and trying to figure all this out. So the other thing that was found in the trailer was Gary Mathias's shoes, which is why a lot of people think Gary was the one who made it to the trailer with him. I mean, that does make sense, but I guess... Maybe they switched shoes or maybe he gave up his shoes. I don't know. Yeah, because Ted's shoes were not found in the trailer. Hmm. Yeah. We'll get back to that in the theories, but it's just a thing to note. Noted. So the search was on for the other boys right away because now that they found Ted, they're like, okay, now we have a place to look. They didn't think they would have made it that far. So the search was on. And by June 6th, about four or five miles from the trailer back towards the car, searchers found the bodies of best friends Jack Madruga and Bill Sterling. They had never left each other's side, had they? No. They were found really close to each other. Even though animal activity had kind of scattered their remains a bit, it's thought that they were together when they succumbed to the weather. Yeah. And the car keys were found in Jack's pocket. Is there any significance to that? Well, I mean, we'll get to it in the theories, but some people think they didn't drive the car to where it was, but the car keys were found in Jack's pocket. Oh, well then, yeah, that's definitely going to help for down the line, sure. So where they find Jack and Bill is about eight or nine miles from the car. So even that is farther than they were searching because they were only searching about five miles around the car. Yeah, and they're quite a distance further, which, I mean, they're never going to find them with the radius that they were searching versus what they were actually found at. Right. So eight or nine miles from the car, but about four or five miles short of the cabin. It's kind of assumed that they might not have ever made it to the cabin, that they likely succumbed to the elements on the way to the cabin. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, because their cause of death appears to be like hypothermia and exposure. Not really any signs of foul play. One of the boys had a broken rib, but they say it could have been caused by something that happened post-mortem or even like a fall. 
something that wouldn't have caused death. Or I like the the postmortem thing because, I mean, animal predation and stuff like that. Yeah, that's what I've heard the most was that it could have been caused by animals. So where we're at is Ted was in the trailer. Bill and Jack are on the road between the car and the trailer. So we're still missing Jackie Hewitt, Ted's BFF, and Gary Mathias. So the searchers keep searching, including Jack Hewitt, Jackie's dad. He was searching closer to the trailer than Jack and Bill had been found because he knew his son would have been with Ted. They would have never left each other, like, on purpose. So he feels like Jackie was going to be closer to Ted. Yeah. And he thinks that Jackie was in that trailer taking care of Ted till Ted passed away. He feels like there's just signs in the trailer. There's some markings on a chalkboard that he feels like his son made. The tucking Ted into the bed sheets. He feels like that's something Jackie would have done. And so he is searching closer to the trailer and he comes across some clothing that looks like Jackie's. And he picks up a jacket and his son's spine falls out of the jacket. Oh my God. God. And most of his remains were found right there nearby his clothes, except it took two days to find his skull. But they did eventually find it. Is this where that the guy with the dogs found the bone? Yes. So in that podcast that I was telling you about, that Yuba County 5 podcast, that's really great. They have interviews with Jackie Hewitt and he, or I'm sorry, Jack Hewitt. And he explains a lot of this searching for Jackie and what happened. And he said the day before he was eating lunch or having a cup of coffee by the creek. And he saw this guy beating up his dog is what he said. He goes, he was beating the shit out of his dog. And I was like, hey, what in the hell were you doing? Beating that dog, like stop that. And the guy said that his dog had a deer bone in his mouth and he wouldn't let it go. That was kind of the end of that conversation and they just moved on with their day. So then the next day when he went up there, he's like, I want to see what that dog was really about. And that's where he found the clothes and everything. And he said he knew right away it was no deer bones, that they were human. He could tell. Oh, man. What a what a discovery to come up on. And just because your dog was being a dog and just found an old set of bones. Yeah. And also, if there's a bunch of search and rescue people up in this area <laughs> looking for, yeah. for human remains of five people that went missing and your dog has a deer, don't you think you'd be like, hey, just to make sure, is this a deer bone? I don't know. That seemed kind of weird to me, too, but. I mean, maybe that guy wasn't up there with part of the search That's team. That's what it's always up there. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about that before. Yeah. It's kind of what that sounded to me like. He was just kind of up there and it was like, oh, man, this damn yeah. dog found this deer bone. But, um, you know. Yeah. So they keep looking for Gary Mathias because now he's the last one not found. And closer to the trailer, but in the opposite direction, they found Forest Service blankets and a flashlight. So they started searching this area super heavy for Gary Mathias. By June 19th, they had found no signs of him. So they called off the search and they presumed him dead as well. They pretty much were just like, he's out here somewhere, but we haven't found him. And they just stopped looking. So for law enforcement, that's kind of the end of it. Five boys took a wrong turn, got lost. Only one or two ever made it to the trailer and they were too stupid to start a fire and turn on the heat or eat more food. And so they just succumbed but that's not enough because it doesn't make sense there's questions that are not answered by the they got lost narrative and they should be answered the first of which is who the hell made it to the trailer and who didn't like we should at least know that yeah i would like to know that i mean because and if it was all of the boys or if somebody else was even with them too right which may or may not change whether there was foul play 
But as we'll go over the theories, some people don't think Matthias ever even made it into the woods to begin with. So it's like that question could at least be answered if we knew for sure he had made it to the trailer. Yeah. And then the second question, and frankly, the more important question, is why the hell did they end up in the forest to begin with? Because if you can't answer that, you don't know if it's a crime or not. Absolutely. That's a really good point. And it's one that I think that kind of gets glanced over a lot. Like... Totally. That's, that should be number one figuring out, you know? Yeah, because something or someone forced them into those woods. And until you know what it was, there's no way you can say that it wasn't foul play. Because, yeah, the getting lost in the woods theory, I understand that that might have not have been foul play, but how did they get to the woods? Exactly. Like, that's... Which brings us to theory land. It's a great place to be. Yeah, I know. It's your favorite. Well, it is because it's a, it's a free membership. You don't have to pay for it. Yeah, but most of these theories depend on who made it to the trailer because at least one of them did besides Ted because he couldn't have tucked himself in. His feet in the condition they were, he probably couldn't have moved around a whole lot and he definitely couldn't have lost more toes than he had to begin with. So somebody else besides him made it to that trailer. One of the more talked about things on who made it to the trailer was this P-38 can opener that was used to open some of the cans. And then a church key was used to open some of the other cans. But because of the P-38, people theorized that Gary Mathias or Jack Madruga had to have made it to the trailer because of the military background. And I, I mean, that's fine. That's a, a good logical thought. But a P-38 yeah. can opener, like, they make it seem like it's this, like, wildly hard thing to use but really it's it's kind of like a a razor blade on a door hinge right like that's kind of the best way i can think yeah of to describe. that's what it looks yeah. like yeah and so like it, i don't think it's an easy thing to use but i i feel like it's kind of straightforward too well and if you're in a survival situation you're gonna open a can with a, a butter knife if that's what or you have rock. like you'll yeah. think yeah like you're gonna figure out how if you have a can opener even if it's not like a normal can opener that most people have ever seen, you're going to figure out how to use it. You have nothing but time to sit there and figure it out. Yeah. But Jackie Hewitt's dad also carried one of these can openers because he was a Korean War vet. And so it's possible that Jackie would have already known how to use it too, even though he wasn't in the military. How often did it come up that he was going to need a P-38 can opener in civilian life? I don't know that he carried it every day, but they he was known to take his children like hunting and fishing and camping and stuff like that. And he did use one when they did those activities. Yeah. I, I'm not sure he like carried it on his waist every day. That's not what I meant. But he was known to have used one. So it's possible that Jackie knew how to use it too or figured out how to use it. But the other reason that a lot of people think that it was Gary Mathias that made it to the trailer was because his shoes were found in the trailer. That is a pretty good indicator that he might have made it there. In most cases, yes. I would agree that that would be a pretty yeah. good indicator. Except in times like this, like I feel like shoes could have been easily taken off one and put on the other. So, Or switched for some reason. Or Gary had his shoes off in the car, and when the boys got out of the car and went into the forest for whatever reason, maybe one of the boys grabbed his shoes because they were like, well, Gary's going to need his shoes if he comes back or whatever, you know? Yeah, I could see that. Or if they all had terrible frostbite and their toes were falling off, maybe they were taking their shoes on and off and switching shoes for whoever's shoes were bigger. Maybe their feet were swollen and it hurt to put their own shoes on or 
Yeah. It's not 100% proof that he was there, but it is a pretty good indicator that he may have made it there. It is a pretty good indicator. I mean, I will give you that. Yeah. So, like, there was 11 toes. Were any of them kept over to, like, hang on to or test? Or maybe they would have at least kept them for DNA purposes or, you know, something along those lines. I kind of doubt it. I don't know for sure. And they haven't really said, but they didn't really treat this as a crime scene. They treated it as lost boys in the woods. I mean, we heard secondhand from somebody that was there that when law enforcement got to the cabin, it was super cold in there. So they started a fire to warm up and they were like, hey, why didn't these guys start a fire? It's like you started a fire in a crime scene. What the fuck are you doing? (laughs) Yeah, but it wasn't a crime scene to them. They weren't treating it as one. And that's they, fair, they, and we still don't know if it was or not. Right, but they didn't treat it as one just in case. Yeah, no, I get where you're coming from. But, I mean, it was 1978. They also didn't know about D. De- I mean, they might have known about it, but it was real. It probably seemed like a science fiction thing for them. You know, like, <laughs> oh, that's not a real thing. So, it wasn't a crime. They didn't treat it as a crime scene. And we obviously will probably never be able to prove who made it and who didn't. So we'll just move on to the theories. All right. So everyone kind of has a different theory, I think, to this. So let's start with what law enforcement's theory is. What's their best theory of what happened? I don't know for sure, like, what's in their case file or anything like that. But it seems like from newspaper archives and stories from the time and stuff like that, that they pretty much subscribe to the wrong turn theory. That on the way home from the basketball game, the boys took a wrong turn and got stuck on this remote, unpaved road in the mountains and then ran into the forest and got lost. Okay. I mean, (laughs) like... yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh yeah, like okay. Um it could have happened. Yeah. And I think that I think this is the one that they want to have happen because it involves the least amount of responsibility onto them. Yeah. You know. Exactly. But it does feel like pretty unlikely because the boys knew the drive. They would have turned around when they realized they were on the wrong road. Like they were from the city where there was no snow, paved roads and lights. So when it got dark and the road ran out and then they hit snow, you would have think they would have just turned around. Yeah. I mean, I think that makes the most sense. Sure. Right. And if they didn't and they did get stuck up there in the snow, why would they get out of the car without heavy coats and boots and stuff like that and just run into the woods? Yeah, unless they had to. Exactly. Yeah. Why wouldn't they push the car two, three feet out of the snow and drive back down? Or at the very least, just stay in the safe, warm car. Like, say they didn't know what to do. Why wouldn't they just stay in the car? I don't know. Especially because it was found with plenty of gas and, like, in fine condition. So it's not like they had to. Yeah. And Bill Sterling was super into maps. That was, like, his thing. He even had, like, four maps with him on this trip. So it's really, really unlikely that they got lost. Obviously, they got lost in the woods, but like to begin with, right? it's very unlikely. The next theory was the Gary had a schizophrenic episode. And this became really popular because Gary was the only one they didn't find. So the focus turned to him pretty quickly. And it's somewhat easy to see why he was the only one with a known mental illness and any kind of like run-ins with the law or any violence or anything like that in his history. 
So in this theory, Gary stopped taking his meds and had some sort of episode where he forced Jack to drive up to the mountains and then somehow either through some sort of shared paranoia or force, he chased them into the woods and then they've eventually all succumbed to the elements. That carries some weight, I think, you know, and uh, yeah, I, I think that's not what people want to think have happened. And I think that's kind of probably a bigger stretch, but it's definitely a very good answer to this. Something like that would make a ton of sense in this instance. And I think so, too. It could explain the no fire, I guess. Like if he thought somebody was after them or convinced the other boys somebody was after them, maybe he didn't want to call attention to them. You know, by building a fire in the cabin and then they would see the smoke. Mm -hmm. It seems unlikely, but it could be. The one thing that bothers me, though, is how would he have gotten Jack to drive off course, which the boys wouldn't have wanted to do, and up into the mountains, which Jack would have never wanted to do in his precious car? So it's like, how did did he have a weapon? How did he get them to do that? And then how did he get them into the forest? Yeah. And then did he also succumb to the elements or did he survive? Because it seems unlikely that he would have survived because he would have been found by now with his mental illness. Like he would have popped up somewhere, either with law enforcement or at a hospital or something. If he had even made it that far. But I mean, who knows? I mean, he could have ended up somewhere in the mountain, like in a cave down down a hill in the bottom of the lake, something. Yeah. And if his body is up there, it's unlikely it would ever be found now. Totally. Yeah, besides all the years that have passed, you know, the forest fires that they've had up there, pretty unlikely that anything will ever be found. But this this theory has some potential, I guess. I mean, it's not totally out of the question. And one very common thing with people who have a history of mental illness, too, is like they start taking their meds, start feeling better. And then as they go on, they're thinking these meds don't help anymore. Why do I need to take them? And then they stop. And so though he had been on meds for a while, I mean, it's not out of the realm of possibility that the same thing happened to him. Like, hey, I've been doing really well. I don't need these. They don't really help anyway. And he did stop. And then something like this has happened. So, yeah, that's yeah, that's in the realm of possibility, too. That's a very common thing. It is. The problem with every theory in this story is you could run a Mack truck through every one of them because apparently some of Gary's medication was injection based Hmm. and it was the kind that builds up in your system. So they estimate that his schizophrenia probably wouldn't have even been a problem for at least a couple of weeks, maybe even Mm, when they went into the woods. Because he didn't miss any of those injections. Interesting. Oh, so that's a really interesting point that I didn't know. Yeah. Some of his medications were orally, though. And who knows? Like maybe if he stopped those ones, but not the injections, they could have caused something else. But it from everything I've read, the medications that he was on are the kind that build up in your system and they take a while. Like if he would have stopped them, it would have taken a while for any problematic symptoms to come back up. Yeah. So the next theory that we're going to touch on just for a minute, although it is one of my favorites, (laughs) is the Joseph Schoen's theory. The guy that a lot of people think was just like a drunk liar and a storyteller. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But why was he up there? (laughs) Well, we know about him already. Like, his background is not the best. He has a history of being somebody to fib and make up things. So I don't know. But that's why I don't understand why everybody's so quick to believe him that he didn't have anything to do with this. Because 
everybody's like, oh, he's a liar and a storyteller. So like he probably didn't see the guys. He probably didn't see the headlights. It's like uh, he probably didn't have a heart attack and then walked eight miles. Either, <laughs> but why are we believing that? And I mean, and again, this guy already has a history of being a massive storyteller and, you know, putting himself in just the thick of all these things that are happening. So, yeah. Right. So in this theory, maybe Shones had like a ruse because the boys were known to be very nice and very accommodating. And that's probably one of the only things that would have gotten them off course besides being threatened or forced would be if somebody was like, hey, I'm stuck in the snow or I have a flat tire. Can you help me? Then I could see they would have driven up there to help him. Yeah, I could see that too. Like, say, say they had taken the wrong turn, but they turned around at that mountain house bar, you know, yeah. before they ever got up to the snow line. They turned around there, and he had a ruse that was like, hey, come help me with my car that's stuck in the snow. They might have gone and helped him. And then maybe he scared them. Maybe he was just messing with them and scared them into the woods. Yeah. You don't know. We don't know. Yeah. But there was shotgun shells found near the car, and they don't know if they're related, but that could be a way that somebody would have scared them into the woods by maybe shooting a gun in the air and pretending they were shooting at them. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, that would scare me into the woods, too. Yeah. So because the car was left with the window, the driver window down and it unlocked, which Jack would have never done willingly. So it seems like maybe somebody said something to them and they got out of the car and then they had to run. Yeah. No, I see where you're going with that. Yeah. Another theory is like the unknown entity, like something, maybe an animal, a bear or something like that scared them into the woods. But that still doesn't explain why they would be up there to begin with to get a bear to scare them into the woods. Yeah. And like, it's kind of weird, too, for something like, I mean, again, they have a car. Just get back in the car. Yeah, exactly. So one of the bigger theories that I've heard about more recently, but apparently this theory came about like almost right away before the bodies were ever found or anything. This theory goes that the boys stopped at the Orville Dam on the way home from the basketball game, which is on the way home. And this town bully that everybody is supposedly scared of and his crew of idiots started poking fun at the boys, maybe Jackie in particular, and Gary Mathias stuck up for him. And the bully and his henchmen then beat up Gary Mathias and threw him over the Orville Dam into Lake Orville, which would have scared the boys. They would have jumped back in the car and just booked it. And maybe they ended up going up this mountain road by accident, just running away from this town bully. And in this theory, either the bullies followed them, or maybe when they got stuck in the snow and got out, Joe Shones is yelling about his stupid heart attack, scared them, and they ran into the forest where they got lost. Yeah, I can understand that then. All that happening at once, and even if he was actually having a heart attack and he was still yelling and stuff, like I can see it being overwhelming and just being like, I'm over that, you know, and just whoop. Yeah, if the if the boys were scared, if they thought somebody was following them still, exactly. they might have run. So where did this theory come from? Allegedly, one of the crew, you know, the henchmen for this bully confessed to Gary Mathias's family that this is what happened. Oh. Yeah. And then he later died of a heroin overdose or one of the other guys that he said was there died of a heroin overdose, even though he wasn't a heroin addict. That seems (laughs) seems a bit uh, peculiar. People don't usually just pick up heroin out of the blue. Right. And that podcast that I was telling you about, 
uncovered that in the police file for this case, there was a note in the file that Matthias could have been a victim of homicide, Hmm. which could just be a note that somebody took down or it could be a lead that they were following. Absolutely. And this town bully was really bad. Everybody was scared of him. This would have been right in line for his antics. I've even heard stories that even law enforcement was afraid of this guy back then. So they didn't even mess with him. They just kind of let him do whatever he want. And then he later became a preacher. So this theory sometimes is also mentioned as like the preacher theory. It's the same guy. Was this more of like a mob bully? Because for the police and all the townspeople to be afraid of him, I mean, and he, <laughs> no, he's he had like, henchmen. I like that. I like that he had henchmen. I made that up. That's not a thing. That... I know, but I still like that he has henchmen. <laughs> yeah. No, I think he was one of those like good old boy. I run this town bullies. Kind of like Ken McElroy. Yeah, that was a big one, too. Yeah. So we're not going to go into any of the crazy theories like the alien abductions or the UFOs or any of that. Or like that Gary survived in the woods for two more years and then committed the Ketty murders. Like, that's all bananas. Or the fact that there was like a bunch of Hell's Angels cooking meth up in this area. Or all the people who live off grid that could have done something to them. Like, those are all theories, but don't seem very likely because none of them even explain how the boys were up there to begin with. They don't answer that question. So what do you think is the most likely theory, Grant? Well, i got to be honest. I really like the schizophrenia theory a lot until I found out that the dude took injections to like keep up on his meds because I feel like that's a little bit more concrete. Yeah, it's too concrete that like he, he did that. Yeah. You know, the town bully thing, I think... That carries some weight to it, especially because, as we said, a henchman or a foot soldier for our Ninja Turtle fans out there, like myself, would admit to something like that. I mean, that's a pretty big deal. So, yeah, you know, it is. (sighs) And so soon after it happened. Yeah. If they weren't involved, how would they know that Gary Mathias's body would not be with the other boys' body? Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because in that story, they threw Gary Mathias into Lake Orville. Right. So if if that story wasn't true, how would they know that Gary Mathias wouldn't have been found? And the way he died, too, was very suspect. You know, I mean, that doesn't sound like he just started using heroin and did too much. Like, that seems like it was intentional. So, I don't know. That one seems to have a lot of hold to it, too. But there is the whole other, op- yeah. like, the whole other side of this is this could have been a wrong turn. So... You know, without any kind of a smoking gun or anything really to point to that, I guess the wrong turn theory to me is the most likely scenario at this point because we really have nothing else to go off of. And I feel exactly the opposite. I feel like the wrong turn theory is the least likely because of the boys knowing this road, they would have never ended up there. Like, I don't know what is the most likely theory. Like, I don't I feel like there's a lot of weight in the in the town bully theory because of the confession and all that kind of stuff. But also, even if it wasn't that, I feel like there was some thing that we don't know some whether it was a random person, a suspect that has been talked about whatever something scared them either up that road and into the forest or at least into the forest from being on that road. yeah i agree i mean because these guys weren't like so, just fun-loving teenagers who you know were out looking for a good time no they had plans i don't know that's tough yeah well we have no idea what actually did happen so 
If you have your own theory of maybe what happened, you can go to our Instagram at from crime to crime, or you can email us at from crime to crime podcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to change your Amazon smile to DNA dough project. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone, and stay out of the woods. I think what Erica means to say is like, go hiking and have a good time. Enjoy nature. Just uh, not in the winter and don't get lost for sure. No, I mean, stay out of the woods. We don't belong there. And Ty, you should move home. too. <laughs> yeah, Tyson, you should probably come home too, but for other reasons. All right. Well, I love you. Love you too. Okay, bye. Bye.